0: You can bah humbug me all you want for starting the Christmas theme this early, but I'm in the Christmas spirit. I'll tell you why on this week's Cory Act Show. Angels we have- It is time to make the Yuletide gay. The Christmas season is much too short as far uh, as far as I'm concerned for a lot of people that want to wait until after Thanksgiving to get into it. So go ahead. You have permission from a random talk show host in Greenville, South Carolina to play your Christmas music, put up the tree, decorate, and celebrate the Advent season, the Christmas season as it comes. I'm In a particular mood to celebrate, I'll tell you about it in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. I know I have been absent of late, but I have good reason for it. Another thing I was absent for for one Sunday was my duties at Beachwood Church. I was out on the honeymoon in Cancun, Mexico, but on every other given Sunday, you can find me, Corey Truax, and all the good folks at Beachwood Church, where I get to serve as the pastor for teaching. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning. You know, it is this time of year. People tend to be a little more open to church invitations. So I highly recommend it. If, if, you, if you have a church home already, it's a good time to invite. And if you don't, come on out to Beachwood Church. One Sunday morning, we meet 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. We'd love to have you. I'm sure most of you know, I'm a married man. I think... For many in my life, the uh, the response to that is, it's about time. And to uh, to all of that, I affirm and agree. I promise you, I won't gush for the entire show. I'm, give me eight to ten minutes, we'll take a break, and we'll come back and talk about all the stuff of the world and things going on in the moment. But as I sit here, I've been married for 11 days. And, of course, my instinct is to make a joke. Hey, I've been married for 11 days, I'm an expert now. Just ask me for advice. And, of course, I have a lot to learn we are firmly in that honeymoon phase where very little goes wrong and we're just both as happy as can be. I know I am happier than I've ever been. It's actually a blast. <laughs> like I tell you, uh, for 11 days in, I highly recommend marriage. It's, fu- it's fun. It's awesome. In a more serious note on this, here's the, here's the ways I've crystallized it thus far. I highly recommend marriage for companionship, certainly. I've been a, quite the atomized person most of my life. Super happy alone. And in a lot of ways, I'm still content. I can be content if I have to spend some time alone. But there is something really awesome about having a, someone who is your best friend. I get to go home to my best friend every day. I never had that. That the, the The idea of being able to enjoy a lot of the same stuff with someone who enjoys it as enthusiastically as you do. It's just a ton of fun. The, it's almost hard to, uh, to articulate, and I'm quite articulate. She's just the best. We have a lot of fun. What I was, I did life for, alone for so long. I got very used to it that y- you don't know what you're missing. I, I, I'm trying to think of an illustration off the top of my head. I, f- I feel like it's it's someone who, you know, ne- ha- had to eat really clean their entire lives. Their parents were very strict about what they ate. And it wasn't until very late in life that they had their first Snickers or their first Coke. And just, you know, the brain explodes. Like, this is awesome. This is awesome. Like, I I got... But if you don't... You didn't know what you were missing, then there's no reason to know that Coke would be great or that a Snickers would be delicious. You wouldn't know that. And this kind of companionship, I got so used to it for so long... It makes me somebody that actually wants to be around other people. the just the enjoyment of this one companionship uh, I think it's that CS Lewis thing when you really enjoy something you want to share it. It, it occurs to me like I know we bought a house that that shares a back fence with my, uh, the my big brother, my dad and their wives and it almost like it's just a sweetness to hey we should we should go spend time with family. we should let's sh- we should just share more time with other humans. Because out of the core of just spending time with her, it's fun. So I highly recommend, I told you I wouldn't spend too much time on this. I could, cont- guys, I really could do the whole show. So let me rein myself in. I highly recommend marriage, is what I was trying to say, for the companionship. It is quite fun getting to spend a lot of time, getting to come home to your best friend and enjoy the, enjoy life together. I just have the great benefit of my best friend being quite the beautiful woman. Number two reason I highly recommend marriage i can feel it in me i have felt it in me as we approached wedding day i think she would affirm this in herself as well there is something of a high calling that you start to feel like the gravity of it if you really understand what marriage is and and the the responsibility that comes along with it i've always been driven to succeed always been driven to do my best at my tasks but i can feel it internally like i really want to do the right things to be good at being a husband. I, to, I feel an even greater responsibility. I'm not just responsible for myself anymore. And men, we need that. We need something to call us up, call us higher, call us to higher standards, to be responsible for the world around us, to be good stewards. I think marriage does that. It's I, I have in the past called it a civilizing institution. It's one of the things that makes men be civil. But I think it's even more than that. I'm not even a guy all that aware of my own emotions and feelings, but it's one of the things I've been aware of. Wanting to live at a high standard. Uh, in the, within the last few months, there's been a couple phrases out of sermons at Beachwood that have stuck with me. One I've mentioned here recently on the show, it's, it's having the wisdom to know not just right from wrong, but right from almost right. But another was, too, too often we're looking at what we can get away with, instead of having the ethic of what can I do that most honors God? And I can feel that second thing when it comes to marriage. What can I do in this that most honors my wife and the God who gave her to me? It calls us up. And so I highly recommend it because it's fun, but I also highly recommend it because it it calls us higher. Uh, And I also, by the way, I highly recommend all inclusive resorts in Cancun. If if you can get away and afford that, go with the spouse. It's pretty cool. Uh, that, that was a great week, so I uh, highly recommend that, too. I wrote down two other things just from the, the, while I've been away. The the lead-up to the wedding, the marriage, the honeymoon, all that. One is how clearly it illustrated you can't do life alone. So, yes, this companionship thing out of marriage is fantastic. But leading up, there's just some people that need shout-outs to my big brother, to my brother from another mother, Shakai, to... My new brother-in-law, Skip. This like it doesn't go down without those guys. It doesn't. This thing probably is a disaster without my my wife's sister, Tina, without my my sister-in-law, my my big brother, Doug, his his wife, Marley. While we're away on the honeymoon, my dog's being taken care of by my little sister, Beth, and my mom, and again that, uh, well, my actually my nephew, Caleb, and. Uh, and Marley even helping with the, the dogs. Come, I came home to a spotless house that smelled incredible because my little sister and my mother did that for us. There's the the lead up and the aftermath. Just knowing this, it doesn't happen without those people. Some of my my wife Nikki, her, her friends like Sean. I, I want your names said on the air and some of the podcast as a thank you because we we couldn't have done it. N- none of this happens without you. There were so many moments that crystallized for me over those couple weeks, but. And one for me was we're about to start the wedding. Like people are about to start coming in. By people, I mean the wedding party is about to come down the steps and start this thing. And I step center stage, and to my right is my father. The he presided over the ceremony and the most formative person in my 36 years to aspire to be a godly man. And then right a little bit behind him, my big brother. I would say the second most significant person in my life to to aspire just to, to just want to be have fealty to the truth and and do the right things to serve my god by serving him and, and others and finding all the truth in, in scripture and i started looking at the men surrounding me and guys i got a posse men that are they're just they exude manliness they are the tough dudes and they, they would hold me accountable, and they would not mind me holding them accountable. Like, I got dudes around me, and it's an incredible blessing. As I looked around that stage, some of my greatest friends, brothers-in-law, I just got a good group. And it became so clear over these weeks, we need each other. We need, We need good community. And some of you are hearing that and saying... Well, I don't have it. Yeah, I know. I, listen, one of the things that becomes clear, clearer and clearer to me that the rottenness of our culture is because the family fell apart. Starting with men not taking responsibility for their wives and kids, the rise of feminism in response to the weakness of men, and it has just rottened. It, it has hollowed out our culture so that we are a rotten people. We need each other. And one of the grand things about life is you can create your own community. If, you've, if you just heard what I just said there and you said, yes, I, I know we need each other and I don't have it, that's what the local church is for. Dive into one. It's going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be some parts you don't like, but man, we do need each other. And when families have fallen apart, the church for millennia has served to be family to those that are family-less. So I think I'll just finish here. I come back. And I'm getting back into this rhythm, and I want to use this occasion with the airtime I get to just hold high marriage. It is certainly the culmination, a capstone on a love story, the beginning of a love story in some ways. And love is good. The Lord was good to give us romantic inclination. It's that. But it is so much bigger. It is for the glory of God, and more and more I can see it's for the community. It's what the, it is what civilizations have been built on. All of them. And one of the things I say as I look around the Western crumbling culture is that we decided as a culture about 50 or 60 years ago that marriage is whatever. Who cares? Who needs it? And then later we can define it as whatever we want. We thought we could do away with the fundamental building block of a civilization. Even pr- primitive tribes that we don't know much about have... Something like marriage—the idea of men being responsible to lead families and lifelong partnerships—they cannot crumble. So, if you are married, hold it high. Take it with high responsibility. Take it seriously. If you are not married, unless you have the guilt of single, the gift of singleness—I think that's that's a real thing. The Lord makes you content in your singleness. I highly recommend it. And how do, how can you best prepare it? Prepare. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself to be someone to be pursued. Uh, Don't make excuses for yourself. Pursue being the kind of person that the person you want to pursue, you would want to pursue. I got to stop there because there's too much other stuff to do. Um, But hey, I'm a married man, happily so, and could not be more grateful for it. When we come back, hey, there was an election last week. I want to check in on your heart, your emotions regarding that but then i actually do think i have some election analysis that you have not gotten from everyone else about some practical things and some ideas moving forward so stick around for all of that and more on the rest of the core true act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts how do you feel about the election results yeah it's not really me to talk about feelings but I wonder if we can check in on your heart about two weeks after an election day that a lot of us did not expect welcome back to the Cory Truax show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts you can find me on Facebook Twitter or Instagram look for my weird name Corey Truax you will find me there you can also email the show at Cory Truax show at gmail.com Corey Truax show at gmail.com you might say hey man Two weeks ago, the last time you were on, you put out a prediction, and you were super wrong about election results. And I would say, yes, yes, I was. Me, in the entire punditry class, there wasn't anybody who thought, I mean, I mean that. I looked. like, Did anyone actually call this? Did anyone predict an election that was basically a tie or maybe a slight win for rightism or conservatism, but had way more expected losses than you would expect? No. No one called it. No one expected where we ended up landing. And before we get into the mechanics of it and some stuff that I think is interesting that you need to know for analysis, but is my what my nature is is I hope my nature now is to be a, a biblical worldview, a, a Christian thinking show, not first a political show, and asking what our reaction was. There was a time in my life that I really could have been devastated by Tuesday. There was a time I would have been deeply disappointed with that outcome. The Lord has been good to add some perspective for me that any given election does not mean a ton for your life. And I'd ask for that gut check for you. How does this outcome really change your life? If another, here's really the practical outlook, by the way. If one more Senate seat would have gone to a Republican candidate, it's likely some judges that could make important decisions later that some judges that will now be confirmed won't be. Practically, that's the effect on your life. Now, you can say some other disappointing things that, well, I, I feel like this means the country I'm living in is going in a, in a bad direction. The people that I'm living with are, are particularly dark in some way in their spirit. Okay, I can hear all that, but I, I want you to check your own heart. Check your disappointment level, because if it's very high, if it's caused despair or dismay, I would suggest to you your heart might be too closely tied to the outcome of elections, and it's time to gain some perspective on how they actually affect you. Especially with this particular election, actually the last two elections, I've honestly come to the spot where I went, it doesn't matter who you are in the country. You can come away with causes for encouragement and disappointment. Everybody can, because the results are so mixed, That's how 2022 was, and that's how 2020 was. The results are so mixed. It shows just how divided we are. I mean, if you would have told me, this is what's true, Republican candidates are going to win the House vote, if you add all the votes together in every House rates, the Republicans are going to win it by millions of votes, can't remember how many million, but five percentage points, I would have went, oh, that's a blowout. And it ends up not being a blowout. It's very mixed. And so, like just in that one stat, I mean, Republicans won by, I think it is over 4 million votes nationwide. And then someone on the left can go, but man, I barely took over the House. There's so much confusion. And when we get into the details, I'm going to get into the details in a minute. There's much to be encouraged about and much to be discouraged about. I, one more thing on, oh, two more S, yes, two more things on our emotions. I don't want your heart to be affected by this. And if it is, if you get into despair and dismay, I want to call you out of despair and dismay that there's no reason for it. And then you ask yourself if maybe you're too emotionally attached to these outcomes. Let me affirm one emotion. I understand part of the disappointment for some of you. I've had some of these conversations is that you want judgment that you see an ideology, mostly on the the left in the United States that doesn't just allow for sexual deviancy, transgenderism and abortion but celebrates it and elevates it and thinks all of those are the best things. That abortion and transgenderism and aberrant sexual behavior these are goods, they're moral goods, not just things to allow and let let and people uh, just let live, but these are good things to celebrate and throw parades for. You see an ideology that pushes policies that replaces family with government, replaces fathers and mothers with the government, the federal government is their sustainer and shield and buckler. I'm quoting Psalms here because this is a an ideology that sees government as God. That you, yes, you see an ideology that pushes policies that hurts people because things get inflated and crime is worse and all those things. And you see it, and you want justice against them. I get it. There's the people of God throughout eternity have wanted justice on various bad and evil governance. And as we read our scriptures, we find the Lord sometimes grants that justice. And even when he grants that justice, this is an important word, when he grants that justice, sometimes he uses other bad, evil people. He will use Babylon and Syria to judge each other. That's largely seeming how we're going to be. You're disappointed because you want a judgment on evil, but even the ones the Lord might use to give judgment aren't exactly your fighting force that you want to have. You you don't want to stand shoulder to shoulder with. And so the the Lord gave some measure of judgment to that group. He did, and has held back judgment for something else. That's that's not up to you to even be to be despondent about. This is one we where we just say, in my in the if you get your doctrine of sovereign, sovereignty correct, every election outcome that took place last Tuesday should have happened. The Lord knows exactly what He's doing, and it's the best, and you can rest in that. We don't understand it necessarily, but you can rest in what? And what was best is, and uh, whatever, in all of His wisdom, He knows what is best for all people. Final thought on our emotions. One of the things we, sh- we might want to stop and lament over is consider the state of the humans that nominated many of these candidates that voted for a lot of these candidates enthusiastically. Instead of being so angry about the who the candidates are, remember we are a people who chose them. Th- these are some of the takeaways we need to have at a deeper level. That the Lord is sovereign over all this. And at the core, if you want a better political leader, we're going to need to create a better voter and that's a fully spiritual problem. Okay. Now, the last 30 minutes of the show, I think I have a little bit more interesting things to say than your typical conservative commentator. I have some bona fides in this, and that I've been doing it a long time. I mean, I took my breaks from it, but I'm pretty good at the numbers. And you can often pay for some of the exit polling and get the cross tabs. And, you know, it's like 50 bucks and you can get the cool PDF file and start putting together some data. There's some interesting stories in how these votes turned out. So let me give you, I think it's four or five takeaways. My election 22 takeaways. I think it's five of them. Here we go. Start here. This was a tie just like, I feel like the last election, 2020 was kind of a tie. Remember, Republicans picked up, I think it was 10 seats in the House. Donald Trump lost narrowly in six um, in six states, but uh, D- Democrats held the Senate, but the GOP did quite well, Republicans did quite well in the Senate. No one expected that. Something similar happened here. Democrats are going to hold the Senate, Republicans will take the House, but Republicans ultimately got more votes nationwide, and it's basically a tie with maybe call it a slight win for conservatism i mean i mean winning the house it's it is big it's a big deal to have control of the house of representatives the house of representatives is where all the spending bills get generated so you might get some more stability on not spending money we don't have or at least less of it when you look at five million more votes in the house or four million more, more, more votes whatever that was that's a very big deal for conservatism it's a very big win and there are some other reasons for encouragement and, and discouragement. We're going to talk about both. One of the th- takeaways from this election is that no matter who you are, no one can leave election night feeling encouraged and affirmed, and no one should feel despondent. We're just stuck. We're, that's two election cycles in a row. We're, we're just kind of stuck. So it's a tie. It's a tie of an election and if you can call it a win for anybody, it's a slight rightward lean of a win, and I think I'll show that with you as you go. So that's takeaway number one. It was a tie. Well, this maybe a slight win for conservatism. Two, number two takeaway is, when you th- think about marketing, we talk about brands. Brands, uh, like you think, there's th- certain words you think of when you think of Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, Apple, Nike, that's their brand. The liberal brand or the Democrat brand it is deeply damaged and very unpopular. But there is one brand less popular than the Democrat-Liberal brand. And that is Trumpism. It's, I think it goes like this. I've, no brand is popular. That's Let's be clear. No brand is popular. But the most popular or the least unpopular, if you want to say it that way, is conservatism, like a normal Republican. And then... Less popular than that, right now I think is probably your more normal Democrat, liberal. Then wokeism is very unpopular, but that Trumpy thing is very unpopular. And where a normal Democrat could face off against Trumpism, they won. And where a normal conservative faced off against a normal Democrat, the Republican won. So normal Republican beat normal Democrat, and normal Republican beat woke Democrat but where a trump person was on the ballot it went very badly. So takeaway number 2 is the only, is yeah that's how I'll say it. The least popular political brand in the country is trumpism. I can prove that to you in a lot of ways. One is I would take the control group in this election which was Virginia. Virginia as a state didn't have a governor's race, no senate race. It was a state that had a big red wave last year and there were no uh, it's it's a state where some of the other factors don't play in, and it it went quite well for Republicans. All but one of the seats that they were expected to win, they won, and all of their candidates were just normal. They were normies. The the Trumpy people lost their primaries, and the normal Republicans beat the normal to woke Democrats. It was it, if this were a normal election, that's how the whole country would have looked. It would have looked like Virginia, where generic Republicans were beating generic Democrats. But this was not. The normal election. I can prove it to you further. The normal type conservatives did really well. Ron DeSantis, as much as the the left tries to make him a boogeyman, he's a quite normal conservative. Brian Kemp was a really normal conservative who defied Donald Trump in twenty twenty. Mike DeWine is a really normal conservative in in Ohio. Uh, John Sununu in New Hampshire, very normal not all that conservative, but a normal Republican. Greg Abbott, kind of a standard bearer. These guys trounced their opponents. It wasn't close. DeSantis, Kip, DeWine, Sununu, Abbott, these Republican governors destroyed their opponents. They all did very well, in part because, first, they were just normal. They're just normal, excellent governors. They did a good job. Some of them waged into some culture war stuff, but they're just not Trumpy at all. At least three of them were really openly defiant of him. Others are becoming rivals of him. A lot like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia last year who ran for governor. You can see what kind of conservatism did well that night. Well, the the non-Trumpy conservatism, the non-Trumpy republicanism, actually did quite well with the American people. I think I can prove that further. Arizona was very telling about showing that the least popular political brand in the country is Trumpism. The normal conservatives in the state party, they won statewide. Arizona Republicans held the legislature. They held the Senate and the House in their state. The The numbers are really clear. The Trump-endorsed candidates, that's Kerry Lake in the governor's race and Blake Masters in the Senate race, they ran 6 and 11 points behind the House candidates. So if you just add up all of the... Republicans vote running for House, uh, House of Representatives, they got that many more votes than Blake Masters and Carrie Lake, 6% more than Carrie Lake, 11% percent more than Blake Masters. Meaning this, Republican voters, people who went to the polls and voted for a Republican for Congress, some large percent of them, or significant percent, straight up did not vote in the Senate or how, uh, the Senator-Governor's race or voted for the Democrat. If I did my math right... It was 11% of Republican voters, so not swing voters, people who said, yes, I'm a registered Republican, 11% of them in Arizona went out and voted House for Republican. They voted for other statewide offices, but voted for the Democrat for Governor, Katie Hobbs. Because Carrie Lake was kind of a kook. I've been calling her a kook this entire time. The normal conservatives in Arizona did quite well. The two Trumpy ones did quite poorly. And it didn't have to happen. There was a guy named Doug Ducey. Doug Ducey was the Arizona—he actually currently is Arizona governor. He won that re-election in 2018. 2018 was a terrible year for conservatives and, and Republicans in elections. But he won by double digits in a swing state, Arizona. He wanted to run for Senate. And because Doug Ducey didn't say nice things about Donald Trump, Donald Trump tanked him. Donald Trump got nominated, Blake Masters, instead. And D- Doug Ducey, by the way, he was polling ahead of every Democrat that was running for Senate. He would have won that seat. But instead, the Trumpy candidate got in, and they lost. So understand that when you look at that result, there were, when the House races went for Republicans and conservatives, when the state House and state Senate races went for them, there were enough Republican-leaning voters at the polls to elect a Republican governor and senator. But they rejected them. The same voters came out. They rejected leftism in their state legislature. They rejected leftism in their school boards. They rejected Democrats all over the place, except where two very Trumpy people were just a little too much. They just couldn't handle the weird. They couldn't handle the crazy. What's incredible right now is conservative policy and conservative thinking. It's winning. But the candidates who call themselves conservatives are just too much. They're just weird. They're crazy. And they're all Trump people. I'm going to continue proving this to you. We'll move on. I'm I'm trying to get that big takeaway. The first takeaway was kind of a tie. But second takeaway, the least popular political brand in the country is Trumpism. In Georgia, the un-Trumpy governor, Brian Kemp, trounced Stacey Abrams. Blew her out. But 13% of Republican voters who went to the polls to vote for Brian Kemp, voted for the Democrat for, for the Senate, didn't just not vote for Herschel Walker, voted against Herschel Walker by voting for the Democrat. A state that overwhelmingly re-elected their, their Republican governor just can't handle Herschel Walker. He's got too much baggage. He's a, He's just much too Trumpy, and he was the Trump-endorsed candidate. Again, there was a very good candidate that Trump rejected and chose the famous person. To be clear, I think I'll finish the segment here and come back for a final 20 minutes of election analysis. Trump has cost conservatives three elections in a row. His antics and general, him being easy to hate, lost them a bunch of seats in 2018. His demeanor and way of being lost them the presidency in 2020. And now his... Interference in primaries, choosing losers of candidates that are much like him and just make him feel good about him, has cost them in 2022. The entire infrastructure of conservatism got co-opted by one man's ego. And unless we extricate the infrastructure that makes up these campaigns, and if we don't excise his ego from everything, conservatism will continue to lose. So take away one, it was a tie. Slight win, maybe, for rightward leaning people. Number two, Trumpism is poisonous. It's the least popular political brand, and it cost the it cost conservatism and cost Republicans this election. I have at least three or four more, including abortions' effect on the race uh, and some odd uh, some odd outcomes in certain states that I want to share with you. We'll do that and more when you come back for the final segment of the Corey Chubak Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. There is indeed a lot of recriminations and explanations about why last Tuesday's elections went like they did. I'm giving you my take, and I think I have the most well-rounded, because we're taking all of the argued factors and putting them in balance. Welcome back to The True Act Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. I'm giving you my four, five, six, whatever it is, takeaways from what happened last Tuesday. Number one takeaway being, it's basically a tie. We've had two elections in a row that were ties. Maybe slight win for conservatives this time. Two, the the brand in the country that's most unpopular, the most poisonous political brand, is Trumpism. Three, abortion played a role. Sadly, it did. We're, we're apparently a country that is dedicated to the idea that if a woman has a pregnancy that she doesn't want, that the person who pays the price is the unborn child. It's so one of the oddities of this cycle, I think, that changed it, that made it so weird as compared to the rest of historic cycles, where the party out of power does quite well. Most of the time, the party out of power does quite well because the person in power does something particularly egregious or unpopular. In 1994, when Newt Gingrich was swept into Speaker of the House with the contract with America, it was that Hillary care They tried to do a health care thing that was very unpopular, and Americans responded by giving... Uh, Republicans the House for the first time I think in that time, first time in almost fifty years sixty something seats. 40, uh, actually, I don't remember how many seats that was. Two thousand and eight uh, and and oh nine. Obamacare was this very unpopular thing, and it was the biggest. It is the biggest blowout win for any party ever in a midterm election. Republicans take the House and the Senate. I think it was set, six or seven Senate seats. It was sixty three House seats. The big abrasive thing happened, and it. It, it switched the, the, the midterms. I would argue that was the surge in 2006, the Iraq surge. Do you remember that? I mean, some of you don't, I would imagine. You're quite young. But there was a surge that George W. Bush pushed into Iraq in 2006, and it made Nancy Pelosi speaker. So something big happens that the out-of-party power responds to with energy. The thing here is the big, most important thing, the most significant thing that happened in the last two years was overturning Roe versus Wade. And so it set, instead of it being a legislative achievement by the party in power, a bill to sign, instead it was something that the party out of power celebrated more, and so it invigorated the party in power, the pro-abortion party. It's, it's, it is really clear American liberalism holds abortion as a sacrament. I think le- leftism is a competing religion. the, thing with the Christianity is a religion. Leftism, not necessarily traditional liberalism, but leftism is a religion. One of its sacraments is abortion. In the Christian religion, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Abortion is a sacrament in leftism, and they came out to defend it. And it became clear that folks in the middle, like for the first time in my lifetime, the party out of power lost independent voters unregistered or non-affiliated voters. And I think it's because it's incorrect, but the middle— views republicans as wanting to ban abortion outright. Of course I want to do that, but that's not the majority position in the Republican Party, but the 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 uh the view of the person in the middle, they think Republicans are trying to get rid of abortion altogether and that freaks people out. You you probably heard the the mud much made of stat where single women were the only Uh, When it comes to relationship demographic that went for Democrats, married men and women went fairly large for Republicans. Single men went only by seven for Republicans, but it was something like 30. By 30, single women went for Democrats. There's a lot of commentary on the right right now about the, the cause of that. I'll maybe come back to that at a future show. I don't want to touch it right now. Just trying to give away the takeaways. But that, that was a driving and animating force for that group, was protection of, uh, of abortion. So while it was significant, I think it's, it's unwise and incorrect to think of it as the primary driver. Here's why. So while it was a factor, I think the left is over-interpreting it. They're interpreting that people just heart abortion. And our country likes abortion too much. It's too friendly to abortion. But I think I can prove to you that it's not as significant as they think. For example, the governors I've already mentioned: DeSantis, uh, Brian Kemp in Georgia, DeWine, Abbott in Texas. All of them signed some kind of pro-life bill over their over their time, and it's it's more conservative, a more conservative bill than than that that, that state had. And so that tells me Brian Kemp had voters that showed up to vote for Raphael Warnock. They voted for a Democrat for Senate, but his abortion position wasn't enough to turn them off. Mike DeWine signed in Ohio a fairly conservative anti-abortion bill, and that's a a purplish state. They came in and elected him in big numbers. Greg Abbott was always going to win because it was Texas, but it would have been closer if abortion was a big animating force. I mean, Abbott did better against Beto O'Rourke than Cruz did, And that's right after Abbott did do a very pro life thing. I think their bill was a six week bill, maybe, or actually their bill basically ends abortion in the state, if I if I remember correctly, that fetal activity, fetal heartbeat activity law. So yes, it was significant, but if it was as as significant as folks on the left are trying to make it sound, the outcomes in Georgia and in Texas and Ohio would have been different. And then I think maybe this is the best study. I think this is one of the most interesting studies of this election cycle. Pennsylvania versus New York. They border each other. Culturally, they have a lot of similarities. You know, some big cities. I mean, Pennsylvania has nothing like New York, but they have, they have Philly and Pittsburgh. And then that rural, northeastern type of person. The, t- the two states couldn't have gone more differently. It, it really, New York, the state of New York, is the reason Republicans took the House. Those uh, there's two Republican House seats I think now on Long Island and then in the Hudson Valley that upstate New York. Those are those ultimately were the difference, and I think it was this: in both states, uh, uh, the abortion issue was alleviated because no one is nervous. The, the voters tend to understand now abortion belongs to my state, and in New York there's no appetite to restrict it. In Pennsylvania there's no appetite to restrict it, so I don't have to care about it. I don't have to. I don't have to use that in my vote. And where that was the case, where abortion was mitigated as an issue, Republicans cleaned up all over New York because it wasn't an issue. And they also had a very strong governor's candidate. He came up short, but only a a, a little. But across the border, where, again, abortion wasn't – it was was mitigated. It wasn't a core issue. Republicans get trounced because, again – the Trumpy candidates, Mastriano for governor, Doctor Oz for Senate; those candidates, candidates get trounced because they're terrible candidates. It was, it was those environments that show us that where abortion can be mitigated, the race becomes back to, are are your candidates just normal enough? Are they decent enough to attract enough voters? And in New York, there were; and in Pennsylvania. There was not. So even there, where we can correct for abortion and voters aren't worried about it, it goes right back to candidate quality and who are the Trumpy ones and who aren't. And the final things on abortion is all the referenda put on the ballot, they went the pro-abortion way. Let me say, overturning Roe and getting it back to the states, taking that one step, it was worth it all. It, it was worth having a bad election because it was an important step and ultimately doing away with this scourge, this moral atrocity on our country. But that's how it affected the races, where abortion felt under threat. It drove enough people to make some big changes, and I think again, when we when we correct for it, we can come back to the thing that really drove this election outcome, and that is bad candidates chosen by the former president of the United States. So, number one takeaway: most mostly a tie that conservatism maybe won a little bit to the right. to these uh, the the most the most toxic brand there is is trumpism. 3 abortion had an effect, but it's being overplayed by how much of an effect. And now 4, which now that I'm looking at it, this should have been number 1 cuz this is the most this is the most interesting one. We definitely have a changing voter. Sometime in the mid 2000s, a lot of us who were into this stuff thought ticket splitting was over. That there was never we were ending the days where you voted for one party for one office and for another party for the other office, the parties were just getting so polarized. They were so different that there's just no way to to cross over because the polarization and uh, the word I'm looking for is balkanization within the parties, that ticket splitting was coming to an end. But here is what, again, Trump has brought. He's brought a third party into the mix without having to call it a third party. His third party just happens to win Republican primaries. Let me illustrate to you, illustrate this to you in a way that's kind of rock solid. I don't think you can argue against me on this. Georgia elects a Republican governor and a Democrat senator. I fully believe the Democrat Warnock is going to win that race in Georgia. Wisconsin elects a Democrat governor, a Republican senator. Nevada elects a Republican governor, a Democrat senator. New Hampshire elects a Republican governor and a Democrat senator. Arizona elects big GOP statewide for the House of Representatives, House winners, but a Democratic governor and a Democratic senator. How do we interpret that? I mean, what that means, large numbers of people. When you start adding up those five states, it's now in the six figures. Six figures worth of people went into voting booths, either registered with one party and actually did vote for a major candidate of the other party and independent voters that are not registered with either party went in and did split their tickets in big numbers. When you add it up, it's five States. It's again six figures. This is, a, this is a major trend to watch in how people vote. Now go back. Let's go back through those. I'll do it fast and see who wins. Brian Kemp, a normal Republican. Raphael Warnock, the more normal of the of him and Walker. That's Georgia went for the nor the and also you got to say that Brian Kemp is a more normal person than Stacey Abrams. Wisconsin, I forgot the opponent's name. but Michaels, Michaels, the Republican, the Trump guy, loses to Evers, a normal Democrat, and in the, in this case. The, the Republican senator is Ron Johnson, a very milquetoast, unthreatening person. But Democrats were actually the ones that nominated an insane person in Mandela Barnes. And Ron Johnson wins. In Nevada, the very normal person running for governor, uh, Siselec, I think his name, uh, Lombardo. Lombardo is his name. He beats Siselec. He gets elected. And Laxalt, who is actually was more of a, a normie, but he said some weird things about election twenty, election 2020, he gets beat. In New Hampshire, uh, Sanudu won by won by as big a margin as a Republican as DeSantis did, but Republicans nominated that Don Balduck weirdo who had de- denied the 2020 election, and he got trounced in the end. Do you see the theme? Who keeps winning for either party? There's almost like a, a bias that voters are showing us in those five states that there's a rejection of instability. A rejection of needless aggression and drama, that people who are actually registered with one party are willing to vote for the other candidate, and people not registered at all are not even looking at ideas sometimes anymore. They're just asking which one of you is more normal. Not even the old question that George W. Bush won out on, like George W. Bush was the oh, he's the guy you felt like you could have a beer with. I think these people just want to know, could could I see your like your private Google searches and be okay with you? Are you just some weird conspiracy theorist? Again, I, I, I got to keep saying this. Normal conservatism is winning in Florida, in Ohio, and Georgia, in places where Democrats are winning other elections, normal conservatism is winning, and Trumpism is losing. That should tell you something for the future. If the goal, this is, I want you to use this against your your Trump people. If the goal of rightism, in part, is to stop leftism, we want to stop their march, through the culture and their dominance in the culture. If that's what we want, you have to ask what works. And Trumpism isn't working. It makes them mad. It hurts their feelings. But it doesn't get you anything. We're seeing what works. And that's the route to follow. DeSantis and Kemp and DeWine, these are the ones to follow. Next takeaway, uh, early voting. Um, for people on my side, I don't know what you people are, are mad about. Early voting for, it's a great idea. I've almost never voted on Election Day. And here's a sad truth. Republicans, up until 2020, Republicans dominated early voting. It was actually the normal thing. Go go Google it. The normal thing was Republicans being the more, you know, a little bit older group, sometimes it used to be the more fluent group. Might be on vacation. They were just very responsible with it. They'd go vote early, early voting, absentee voting used to be a dominant Republican thing. But just because Trump got his feelings hurt and cast doubt upon the process, folks on the right just won't vote unless it's unless it is Election Day. And so it's time for the apparatus on the right to realize the left has mobilized it. They have figured it out. They're using mail in voting. Listen, they're not cheating. I need you to hear that they're not cheating. They're using the legal system to their advantage. And so you can either pout about it and say they're cheating, or you can just start using the system. They're they're going to keep using it if you don't. And, and of course, of course the left is dominating mail-in voting because there are giant swaths on the right that don't, don't even believe in it. They don't trust the results. And they don't trust the results. They don't believe in it because one man told them not to. Man, his effects... Just go on forever. Last takeaway was this. Uh, I'm going to run out of time on this. The emerging voter blocks. I've, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing demographic change, where uh, over the last couple of years we've seen that parents are becoming a voter block. Folks that have traditionally voted on the left are voting to the right. <clears throat> Actually, even in this election, a ton of school boards moved to the right because parents are now getting heavily involved and they they have become an interest group. They they have seen that there there are forces on the left I, th- I think a lot of the left just hates the idea of parents and parenthood because the left hates anything that makes the government non-not sovereign the government must be god above all things and so if a parent is saying no my kid is mine the left it uh, the, the left will kick against that and parents are kicking back against it so it's a it's a new voter group that never existed parents weren't thought of as a as an interest group but now they are now we're starting to see that in married life as well. That marriage makes people more conservative. Marriage and then parenthood make people uh, vote Republican more often. I mean, I already told you that that single women's stat was almost 30 points, I think it was, to Democrats. And this this makes sense. Secularism over the last 50 or 60 years made nothingness out of men denigrated the idea of it, uh, called it t- called masculinity toxic, toxic, toxic in a lot of ways. The way that tox- uh, masculinity was being practiced was toxic. But it denigrated m- manhood to the point where then feminism comes along and says to women that the best thing you can be is manly. It's, it's, it's the independence to take care of yourself. In and, and the world that they've created then, there is still a desire to find some kind of male figure and it's just become the federal government. It's become Uncle Sam. Where, where, where does your protection come from? The government will protect me. Where does your provi- provision come from? The government will provide for me. I, I think you can take that back to both the Obama and the Biden administrations. They had those weird cartoons that talked about the life of Julia, the idea of cradle to grave, the government takes care of you. And at the same time that we've seen that, we also find that single women are more medicated than they've ever been. They're more miserable than they've ever been. They have more mental health issues than they've ever been. They're more in therapy than they've ever been. We we hollowed out masculinity and manhood, charged women with being the new men, and it's made them more miserable than they've ever been. We're, we're seeing that in the the voter the voter data as well as one of the that's one of the outcomes. I've run out all out of time. I didn't mean to. Right, no politics next week. I'm going to do my best to come back and do something more meaningful. Thank you for listening. I'll be back with another new edition next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.